Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm delighted to share this series is in partnership with Heck. Being an independent and family-owned business, they pull out all the stops to bring that farmer's market quality to the supermarket shelf. Heck Square Sausage Range is backed by popular demand. As with the rest of Heck's range, which also includes veggie and vegan options, you can be sure of high-quality produce. They're the perfect shape for sandwiching between a couple of slices of wholemeal bread on a Sunday morning or topping with chutney as a dinner party starter. You can find Hex Fair and Square Sausages in Tesco or online at heckfood.co.uk. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic, and author of Renourish and Top of Your Game. In each episode, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Being ill or weak can really knock us for six. We often blame those around us for passing something on or assume our diet is at fault or in some instances thinking we have an allergy to something specific. But are these legitimate thoughts or is it something else at play? Joining me to sort fact from fiction is Dr. Jenna Macciocchi, an immunologist who specialises in understanding how nutrition and lifestyle interact with our immune system. Hello, Jenna. Hi, Rihanna. <laughs> Thank you for coming up from Brighton today. No problem. It's, it's a really. bit of a lovely journey in, though, I'm yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. Nice sunny train journey. Oh, so <laughs> um, I met Jenna, was it last year? Mm-hmm. Last summer? Cause yeah. You, we did a Facebook Live together. Yeah. yeah. And I've been following your progress ever <laughs> since. And it's quite remarkable because I think you're one of a kind, really, on social media talking about this subject. Yes, yeah, yeah. I really started social media as a kind of sandbox for my ideas um, based on my uh, profession and then yeah it's sort of evolved and I I realized no one else was really talking about it in that way so exactly and I wanted to start the podcast by sharing a recent study um, from Northwestern University in America and that suggested the number of adults who think they have an allergy is almost double the figure than who actually have one and in your experience are self-diagnoses are they really high 
Yes, it would seem so. Um, it seems that more and more of us are really quick to jump to the conclusion that we're suffering from some kind of adverse reaction. And normally people tend to self-classify that as an allergy. Yes. Um, but in reality, if we look at the UK, it's only around actually 4% of UK adults that have a true food allergy. I really? think this is a bit higher in the US. Yes. So it's actually rather low. Wow. Um, but in the UK, I think it's estimated that around 20% of us alter our diet to exclude foods because we think that we have some kind of allergy or a perceived um, uh, adverse reaction to food. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to touch on because I know a lot of people turn to supposed miracle remedies and yes. we've got like cod liver oil tablets or orange juice, honey, lemon, not really knowing if they work or not. I mean, are they old wives' tales and what are the most interesting things that you've heard? <laughs> yeah, so this is an area of science that I, I kind of personally love to explore. Um, I probably based on uh, my mum, I think, is the whole the, the, the epicenter of old wives' tales. And yeah. Even now that with my qualifications, she's still like, hmm, yes, well, you know, this will cure this. And, Aww, um, Mama Machiocchi. <laughs> and sometimes it's really... Uh, that there is a kernel of truth in it, but teasing that out um, amidst all the pseudoscience is a lot. Uh, it was quite um, difficult. Most people really ask me about a herbal product that they've heard of, or they think that one particular food or nutrient is going to be the the miracle worker. And also, there's the reliance on supplements. What can mm. they supplement? What one thing can they take? And all of these things are when our human body is not working as it should and going awry. Firstly, we don't know what is going on underneath until we get checked out by specialists. And secondly, often these things are multifactorial. So lots of different factors are playing in. And I always think that in a simple way, there's never going to be one factor that's going to fix it. So no. one food is not going to fix it. Um, one supplement is not going to fix it. That because chicken very... soup is not enough alone to cure your illness. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and funny that you say that because chicken soup is one that they actually have done some scientific studies on right. to show whether it did or not have any properties that helped people when they had the common cold. And it turns out that it does contain particular nutrients that are quite helpful in bringing the immune cells into the nasal cavity and helping them do their job. Ooh. It's also really comforting and it's hydrating. And when we're unwell, it feels quite nice to have a bowl of chicken soup. So there's yeah. like a lot to it, not just the particular nutrient that is, um, you know, making us feel slightly better when we have the lurgy. That's so interesting. I mean, what exactly determines our immune system? So when we're born, let's say I've heard all sorts of things like we should be um, vaginal births are better than having a C-section, mm -hmm. let's say, or obviously breastfeeding for immunology benefits, so yeah. immune system. What what are the things? Yeah, like? I, I always like to think of it that the immune system is something that's made. It's not something that you're born with. Mm. When we uh, look at studies with twins, for example, identical twins, we find that your immune system is actually only 20 to 30 percent genetically determined. Ooh. And the rest happens after you're born. Some of that maybe upstream what's happening when you're inside your mother's womb and um, then the real kind of shaping of our immunity happens in the first five years of life. So as adults, when we, you know, are getting worried about our immunity and what can we do about it, uh, it's unfortunate to say, but a lot of that was built in the first five years of your life. <gasps> wow. And so it can be that setting of the, the sort of immune rheostat that can determine lifelong um, health down the line. Um, 
That's so interesting. So what we're kind of saying is that any parents out there with an under five. Yes, I know. <laughs> Sorry, the pressure's on. I am also yeah. a mother with kids under five and I yeah. know that it's, uh, you know, it's always in the back of my so mind. So what would but you say? Play with dirt a bit more yeah. as well as eat well? Well, the things that we really do know uh, is that the microbiome educates the immune system. This is really clear. Mm. Um, all sorts of mechanisms are involved in doing that. And Therefore, you want to have a rich and diverse microbiome. And one of the best ways to do that is to have a vaginal birth. Mm -hmm. That's not always possible. And it's not to say that Mm. terrible things are going to happen if you don't uh, manage to have that. But this is the first state stage in colonizing the, the baby. So the baby is sort of sterile when it's in the womb. There is a placental microbiome and there's some studies showing that there's a small um, uh, collection of microbes in the in the womb. But you can imagine when it first comes into the world, the baby is suddenly in this microbial world and it gets colonized by the um, vaginal canal. And we know that C-section babies have a different type of colonisation. Mm. It's mostly with skin bugs that we find well, that go into their It's important to touch just for anyone that's um, lost on the microbiome thing that is just a word for basically bacteria all over yeah, your body, living exactly. things. exactly. Living bacteria yeah. on us and in us. Yeah. Um, all sorts of microbes yeah. that are actually good and healthy and um, yeah. we need them. And they're kind of like our allies. So they're doing yeah. a lot of good things for our oh, body. I, lo- I find it fascinating. I mean, I think all of our guests are extremely interested in the yes, microbiome. Yeah. In season two, we had an episode with Professor Tim Spector oh, on yes. the gut microbiome. Yeah. And I think that it's important to remember it's not just in the gut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's um, just it. Recently had a student looking at the placenta microbiome, wow. which is just mind-blowing because the dogma was that, that everything about the baby was sterile until Mm. it was born. Um, So the next big influence on the microbiome and consequently the immune system is uh, how it's fed. And for a long time, scientists were kind of puzzled as to why the breast milk has had these particular complex carbohydrate chains in it. And the the baby didn't seem to need these for nutrition. And then all of a sudden they discovered that this actually feeds the microbiome. So it was a way of kind of encouraging the growth. It was the fertilizer mm. that you put on this fresh new baby's gut to kind of improve and tease out more bacteria. Um, so we know that breast milk is the best way to do that. And it's not something that can be replicated in formula. Oh, no, but formula I, doesn't have gut stuff to help your baby's yeah, gut. They try to kind of yeah. mimic it as much as possible. Mm. And again, that's not to say that formula is is a bad no. thing or a Some detriment to health to have it. Yeah, yeah but this is just from what we know from the science wow. um and then you know antibiotics this has a huge impact on our immunity particularly mm. in childhood we know that when you um take antibiotics you can almost in, particularly in kids wipe out huge amounts of species of their microbiome and we don't know if they regrow they might regrow in some people it's kind of like rolling a dice and you never know how you're going to recover but we do know that kids that have more frequent antibiotics actually end up getting more illnesses, colds and flus and things. And we think that's because the, the hit it has on their microbiome. Oh, it's fascinating. And what about genetic links with the immune system? Are there any of those? Yes, I mean, the, like I said, there's maybe about 20 to 30% of our immunity yeah. that's genetically determined. Wow. And it's kind of like our own fingerprint. The genes that make up the immune system are really unique in how they're organised and how they're yeah. recombined to make all these different receptors for our immune cells. Yeah. So it's what makes us really, really different, even between identical twins. It's, it's so fascinating. I mean, is there anything that we can do as adults now to improve our immune system? So is it all too late? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because... Um, 
as much as much of it's built in the mm. beginning obviously there's various things that we can do throughout our life to really yes. um nurture our immunity and keep it healthy and i i often see the term immune boosting which makes my skin crawl <laughs> because we don't want to boost the immune system the immune system craves balance mm. if you think about in our day-to-day life if you're healthy you don't have a cold nothing's going wrong yeah your immune system's actually working really hard yeah it's tolerating everything in our environment everything yeah. we're breathing touching yeah. seeing everything that we're ingesting it's not reacting to that even though our immune system looks for things that are foreign to us so it would recognize thing particles in the air as foreign but it knows that they're not dangerous so it's making these decisions all the time so we want to encourage balance in our um, um, immune system I mean there can't be one single thing so we have this discussion yes. a lot on the podcast so just because iron apparently strengthens our immune cell mm-hmm. army just adding more iron rich food surely can't be enough yes I singly think, yes exactly so there's no one factor no one dietary factor diet is kind of the go-to I think yeah. it's something tangible that people yeah. feel they can do that is actually going to have an effect but if I was to probably rank all the different things that can yeah. affect your immunity I'd put sleep at the top yay it's so <laughs> so important we know that one bad night of sleep these particular cells in our body called natural killer cells quite an aggressive sounding mm. name but they go out and they kill cells that get infected with viruses and they also kill cells that are precancerous cancerous and cancerous so they're really quite important but one poor night of sleep so either reduced quality and quantity these cells can take a dip by um, 70 to 80 <gasps> percent yeah. leaving you really vulnerable and it's always those times when you have a lot of um, late nights because you're busy or you're working on something that you then you know we all end up with that annoying cold or flu or seasonal lurgy so the sleep is really really important it's also very restorative so the oh, melatonin yeah. that comes um, the hormone that induces sleep this is actually quite um, restorative it affects the the generation of new immune cells sending them out into the body to all the different places where they can play a surveillance role and maybe you're familiar with the recent study where they um, have linked shift working to being a potential carcinogen and that's because our immune system doesn't just look after us from an infection perspective but it's our main cancer surveillance system so it's protecting us from potentially getting cancer and when that is disrupted with shift work then it can make us more susceptible oh sleep i i I think sleep something we also in season three have a whole episode coming on i'm not sure the timing of this release but what you've just touched on, that mm-hmm. is huge. And I am yeah. positive the majority of the UK population are sleep deprived. Yes, yeah. I think it's an epidemic, like a silent epidemic yeah. that it's not really talked about. And well, no. the focus has always been mostly on um, nutrition. We start yeah. to see stress becoming more part of the yeah, lexicon. Yeah, what about stress with the immune system? Yeah, there's kind of, if you think about the stress response, it's supposed to be a short-term reaction to uh, save us from something. So there's some danger, there's some situation. Situation, you have to run, you have to go. You don't really want to be mounting immune responses at the same time because you kind of have to triage your energy. Like, mm. what am I going to do? Put my energy into running to save my life or starting an immune response? Yeah. So it's kind of immune suppressive. It 
can yeah. dampen our immunity. It can also just deregulate our immunity if you're constantly having small frequent stresses or chronic stress. It kind of makes your immune system readapt and and lose its kind of set point of when it should and shouldn't react. So it sort of gets a bit confused. Gosh, we've got sleep and we've got stress. <laughs> stress. We know diet plays a role as I mean, vitamin D deficiency has been associated with a re- reduced immune response, hasn't it? Yes. Or yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, we're going into summer as this is being recorded. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we all need to get a lot more about that. But something I know you're very interested in is the immunometabolism. So that refers to the impact of carbs on our immune system. Yeah, yeah, this is a really new field. Um, And if you think about it, you know, mounting an immune response to to anything, it's quite a costly affair for our body. It has to Mm. really suck in resources and point them towards that. And your immune cells start proliferating, making an army of themselves. They're producing antibodies. They need a lot of resources to do that. So it only kind of makes sense that the immune system is sensing what food is available, what nutrients are available, what is our metabolism doing. Mm. And I think it's the last five years these two fields have sort of fused together to what we call immunometabolism. Yeah. Gosh, it's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. I think now we have links between immunity and a lot of metabolic diseases, obesity, insulin resistance, um, different uh, aspects of cardiovascular diseases. So it's really exciting and developing, but it's also highly in the experimental stage from what we know. We don't quite have clear public health messages Mm. or the, the clinical data to say, what can we do? And if you think about our immune systems made of all different cells, they each have their own different type of metabolic profile so it's hard to say if you could adapt someone's metabolism when you say metabolic just a a brief definition for everyone listening just so they know what what kind of yeah so this is the different fuel sources they're using the macronutrients either carbohydrates or fats fats. Um, what we do know is that when immune cells mount an immune response they undergo this a very unique metabolic switch to sucking in lots more glucose because mm. it's a very good fuel. Yeah. To, oh, our body you know, loves carbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's quick and easy mm. and they can f- use the glucose to make an army of themselves. Yes. Yeah. And this is known as the Warburg effect. It's actually, it was first observed in cancer cells. So it's what cancer cells use yeah. to uh, grow really quickly. Yeah. And we also see it in immune cells. doesn't mean that they're cancerous, but it's just the same phenomenon, Mm. the same metabolic switch that's happening. And we know that, on the other hand, the cells that regulate immune responses, these actually prefer lipids. So they tend to want to suck in lipids to do their job. So there seems to be this dichotomy. And this has led to the idea that if somebody had a chronic inflammatory disease, immune-mediated disease, could we alter their metabolism so that we could switch off the glucose-loving activated immune cells and maybe promote the the lipids using regulatory cells but as I said it's very Mm. highly experimental and it's really in the early stages yeah it's Um, not that carbs are bad for anyone no exactly and if you have (laughs) an immune mediated condition and you're worried about um uh you know doing something with your metabolism, yeah. we're not at the stage where we can really go out and yeah. give people clear messages because there's so many immune cells and yeah. <laughs> you might be flipping the switch in one and that might not be the right cell that you want to change. So The body is so fascinating. We are all so unique. It's just unbelievable. And exactly. And talking more about exercise in general, I think, on health, I mean, how does that impact our immune system? I, I see people that are over-exercising or yes. under-exercising. Yeah. Exercise is really an interesting 
interesting one when it comes to immunity mm. because it seems to be that some is good but more is not better. So we see uh, this kind of an upside down U-shape curve. So at the start, you have people who are quite sedentary and this is not very good for your immunity. You're mm. more susceptible to infections. Then we have people who are quite active at the top of the upside down U. These people have a good resistance to, you know, daily uh, infections. Mm. They might get the normal one or two colds a year, but everything's fine. But then you have maybe elite athletes or people who are over-exercising. Yeah that actually suppresses their immunity and leaves yes. them vulnerable. We call it the open window. Oh. So it can be taking the immune system to too much of a low that you're actually more susceptible. And we see this particularly in athletes, but also in, I think, the day of Fitzbo, where we have a lot oh. of young mm. people who are exercising too to much. the same extent, like an athlete, perhaps, with oh, heavy some training. some people doing three fitness classes a day. Oh, a day? I thought you were going to say a week. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a day, I, I'd wow. recommend three a week, but no, three a I'd day. I'd love to have the time to. Oh, well, tell me about it, but I'm sure that's probably mm-hmm. suppressing their immune system as well. I mean, how does ageing impact our immune system? Yeah, that's another really um, interesting aspect. So aging is actually considered a form of immunodeficiency. Oh, no. Because we know that with time, the immune system does it. It's kind of interesting because it's in two halves. So there's one arm of the immune system, the more innate, we call it. It's it's recognizing patterns and responding really immediately to those. It kind of deregulates and actually escalates. So it's more responsive. But the other hand, the more um, adaptive immune response that's very specific, this takes a sharp decline. Ooh. So you kind of have the, the non-specific inflammation going awry mm. and then you have a reduction of the more specific, um, more regulating arms of the immune system. So yeah, aging is not uh, a good thing overall, but there are things that you can do to and uh, work against it. Yeah, I was going to say, because from every expert we've ever had on the podcast, ageing doesn't seem to bring any positive aspects, <laughs> apart from perhaps, apart from mental health-wise, which is great. So what what can we do? Is Perhaps yeah. our weight, is that another factor we can do? One of the things that came out in the last few years was just maintaining a good amount of muscle mass. Mm. So something that's associated with aging is frailty, where we lose muscle mass. It's known as sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this loss of muscle mass actually influences our immunity. So there's this beautiful study that was done by Professor Janet Lord up in Birmingham, and she took a group of um, really active cyclists in their 70s and 80s, and then a, set, a group of sedentary people in their 20s. And in, the, in your 20s, we know that the thymus gland, where a lot of your immune cells are mm. produced, starts to decline. So we call it thymic involution. It starts shrinking from our 20s. So that's actually quite young is, for yeah. the organ to decline. Mm. And what she found was that if you stay active like the 70-year-old cyclists, this thymic involution was prevented to some degree. Whereas if you're sedentary in your 20s and 30s, it actually um, accelerates the involution. And they put it down to, they linked it to muscle mass. So the the muscles that are moving, the skeletal muscles as we're exercising, they're producing um, particular cytokines, we call them, these chemical messengers that go to the thymus gland and keep it rejuvenated, keep it young, keep lots of fresh immune cells coming out. Wow. And the younger your cells are, the less likely that they're going to deregulate and go wrong. I want so to be a 70 moving. to 80 year old cyclist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, I think, was it in the London Marathon? There yeah. was a lady 
lady in her yes. 80s complete. It's just incredible what the body can do. So It is, isn't it? I think we need to use what we have a lot more. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I've been reading up on before you came in was that gender. Mm-hmm. So the fact that 8% of the population who suffer from an autoimmune disease and 80% of those are women. Yes, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Gosh, wh- why is this? I'm pretty shocked. Yeah, so this is uh, something that's really clear in the mm. literature. It's referred to as sexual dimorphism. Mm. Um, and we see it not only in terms of autoimmunity, but in terms of immune responses generally. And it's uh, a lot of people in the field that have done some work have actually been able to say that we can say that man flu is actually real because men don't seem to mount yeah. such strong immune responses oh, as women so they do tend to get yeah, yeah. <laughs> they get um, infections for longer and mm. it's harder for them to shake off and if you look globally men tend to die easier from infections so women tend to be a bit more robust right. in terms of their ability to fight infections but on the flip side women get more autoimmune diseases Gosh. and it's probably a many different factors. They've had a look at a different, a few different areas that could be involved. Um, but unsurprisingly, hormones seem mm. to be in the most mm. uh, primary way that is driving this. This. Um, so, how do sex hormones play a role then in immunity? How does that really work? Well, I think it it stands to show that the immune system intermingles with all the other systems in the body. Mm. So, our immune cells contain receptors for all of the different sex hormones. So, they're responding to our sex hormones as they change throughout the month and um, throughout different stages of our life, which is why we might get uh, different symptoms at different times of the month if you're female. You might see an onset of a disease when you're pregnant or a a remission of a disease when pregnant. And the same goes for um, uh, when the... Got the word for uh, end of (laughs) period. uh, Menopause, that's the word. There we go. It's lost. Um, Oh, dear. But yeah, definitely. For example, oxytocin. So that's like the the sort of love hormone. Yeah. Um, This is known to be quite regulating on the immune response. So it takes the edge off any unruly inflammation, keeps it nice and um, regulated. That's good to know. Um, Whereas prolactin. So prolactin is what women who are lactating are producing a lot of because it stimulates the milk. Yeah. This actually... uh, boosts unruly immune responses so it can actually deregulate the immune system which is quite interesting but also during any kind of stress or any kind of hypothyroid disease so when your thyroid's not working so well and some medications can also cause you to produce prolactin and this can trigger onsets of autoimmune diseases. I mean, you think and evolutionarily speaking that we as women would be safe when we have prolactin. You'd think that they yeah, want to protect us when we're feeding quite, a baby. Uh, it's strange. I think e- mm. probing um, through the lens of evolution we haven't yeah. quite been able to explain no. why that happens. Gosh. But n- normally with everything in biology there's usually an evolutionary yeah. explanation for that. I mean, okay. As a woman, obviously speaking here on this podcast, that's a very interesting fact to reveal. And perhaps we should break down what what an autoimmune disease is for people listening. exactly. That's really important. So an autoimmune disease is when the immune system starts reacting against ourselves. And in a normal situation, there's lots of checks and balances in place to prevent our immune system from reacting against ourselves. We have special
special ways of recognizing what is part of us and what is something foreign. Mm. So what is um, a bacteria, for example, because at the molecular level, it looks quite different yes. as different patterns. And the immune system can check up on that okay. and make that decision that respond to the bacteria, but don't respond to our own cells because we know that self and that's safe. For some reason, this goes awry in certain people. Mm. And there's a, a few kind of different ways of looking at it. What's come out recently is that we all have potential for autoimmunity because oh. the way the immune system is designed is to give us this huge spectrum of protection against all the different kinds of things we might find. There's actually almost an infinite number of receptors that are all different that can be generated by the immune system genes because of the way that they recombine. It's a very unique method. If you think about the human body only has around 25,000 genes, that would only give us, if we used all those genes for different immune cell receptors, 25,000 different bugs that, or things mm. that we could detect. But it doesn't work like that. And we have almost an infinite number. We also have a lot of checks and balances to prevent any autoreactive cells from going awry when they come out of the bone marrow, come out of the thymus gland. But in some people, perhaps these are a bit more leaky. And mm. then we have more likely that some autoreactive cells can slip through the net. Um, Gosh. So there's part of it is going to be genetic as yeah. well. And there's also part that could be down to our environment, our microbiome. There's basically a myriad of different factors that play into autoimmunity. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think uh, the human body never ceases to just blow me away, I think, in the way that mm -hmm. it protects itself or, or and sometimes in this case it can't. I hear a lot in my clinic um, of people talking about alcohol and oh. Does it temporarily weaken our immune system? Yeah, alcohol is interesting. In a sense, potentially, yes. But with everything, I think it depends on how much you're drinking. Oh, definitely, probably how much people <laughs> drink. I'm sure, I'm sure that's a vast varying factor. <laughs> so it's been noted uh, clinically for a long time that excess alcohol can actually affect a person's immunity and leave them more open to infections. I'm sure probably people can imagine that the Christmas party season, mm. that's also always when we're likely to pick up um more infections. Yep. Indirectly, it can do this because alcohol is known to affect our sleep. So yes. we might feel like we come home from a night out and we pass out in the most deep sleep ever, but it's known <laughs> to be sleep disturbing. Mm. So we may experience poor quality sleep and even less sleep. Yep. Um, more directly, alcohol can actually affect the generation of the new uh, immune cells that come out of our bone marrow, so the stem ah. cells, and that they go out and seed the body and, mm. and make up our defences. So it's been known to sort of impact those. Gosh, the growth of the immune system is so interesting. Yes, yeah. And, and also there is a recent study that shows that the immune cells in the brain are affected by the alcohol in the blood. And this can actually give us that feeling of being a bit clumsy. So it's actually mm -hmm. our immune system that's responsible for that, you know, alcohol-induced falling over. Oh, gosh, I didn't realise that was down to our immune system. Not that I this happens to me on a regular basis. <laughs> but, I mean, when you said about Christmas flus and things and people mm -hmm. getting it, why is it then sometimes that, for instance, let's use my fiancé as an example, he will come home with flu. Mm -hmm. I just don't seem to catch it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting, isn't this it? This is really interesting. This, for me, is the real beauty and elegance of mm. the immune system because it's we're really as unique as our own fingerprints. Yeah, yeah. And 
it's something that I've thought a lot about and it only makes sense when you think of, you know, if there was one infection, like one serious flu strain that came along and if we were all the same and we all reacted the same mm. to it, it could potentially wipe out our species. Of so we have this real kind of... Um, difference in how we respond to things but the really important thing is that there's no hierarchy mm. so for example your fiance may be much more susceptible to respiratory viruses mm. but he might be you know solid as a rock when it comes to parasitic infections yeah. or something yeah. um there's um going back to autoimmune disease there's a autoimmune condition known as an- ankylosing spondylitis oh gosh and what we find is that people that have that are actually quite protected from HIV. So it's kind of this spectrum, whereas you're protected really well from some kinds of of microorganisms, but susceptible to other ones. Mm. And we're all very different. In my house, I feel like me and my daughter get every gastro (laughs) thing, whereas my husband and my son, they get all the colds and flus. And if we were all the same, we'd all be, you know, we'd have died out as a species. I hope every Food for Thought listener knows by now (laughs) we are unique. That is the thing I'm trying to hammer home constantly. It's. I mean, the, you mentioned viral illnesses, mm. and I mean, viral illness versus infection versus disease. What does this mean in terms of how we treat these things? I mean, how yeah, there's does a lot differ? of different terms, and mm. you know, obviously, in my field, we're very specific about what terms we use. But you know, out there in the, in the media, we the terms are often used interchangeably. It's so, so confusing. An infection could be from any number of different microorganisms. We have parasites, we have viruses, we have bacteria, we have um, all different things, and they look different at the molecular level. So yeah. the immune system is comprised of a whole spectrum of different types of cells because we have these different um, types of pathogens. So it's trying to cover all bases, really. No, it's great. I mean, this modern medicine is, is incredibly um, <laughs> marvellous if we think about what we're able to fight off now. And when we hear that a friend or a family member's ill, I mean, we tell them to rest. I mean, it's something I'm always saying. So take, it, take my own advice. Yes. I should do quite a bit more. It's rest a little bit more. But why is that important? Why should we rest more and not keep hitting the gym when we get really sick? Yeah, it's hard in the modern world because it's it feels hard to press pause. Yeah. But I think... It's it's again the immune system is is triaging your energy resources. It's quite costly to mount an immune response to fight mm. that infection. So you don't want to be having to put energy into unnecessary areas, going yeah. to work, going to the gym, doing your normal routine, mm. because you only have so much energy available to you and resources. You want to let your immune system do its job. And there's some evidence that if you go to the pharmacy and knock back all the over the counter cold and flu medicines, the duration of the infection can actually be longer if you go about your daily life than if you just stop and have one or two days off work, you know, lying in bed on the sofa, letting your body rest. Well, it's something that I think it's hard on people don't see it. So Mm. I'm talking in a nutritional sense. I'm often trying to explain to clients that have poor relationships with food a lot of the time that your brain burns a hell of a lot of energy thinking. Your immune system, like you've just said, burns a lot of energy. And it's what we can't see, really. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It just feels like we can't step away from the treadmill. But there's a there's um, I mean, everyone's probably familiar with those symptoms of having the flu. And a lot of that is is um, psychological. We withdraw Mm. from the world. We don't really want to talk to anyone. We don't want to do anything that is controlled by your immune system. These special molecules they're producing to fight the infection, they act on the brain to induce specific behaviours to try and tell us, don't do your normal things, you know, come back, rest. It's trying to tell Um, you to be, to stop really. And it just shows how 
intermeshed these uh-huh. systems are the brain the mental health and um the immune mm. system and all our physical systems that we can push it aside and ignore those signals. yes exactly so you really have to tune into those they're called sickness behaviors it's an actual clinical term yeah. that we have so listen to the sickness yeah. behaviors what is your body trying to tell you to do because of course movement plays a role in our lymphatic system which is important yes. but it doesn't mean you have to go to the gym guys just a little bit of a walk maybe yeah. and lie on the couch <laughs> particularly at the end of an infection mm. it can be quite good to get a little bit of movement because it flushes out the lymphatics gets everything moving yeah. again and even people with chronic immune diseases the kind of advice is changing that a little bit of movement is is more beneficial within that person's particular constraints of That's their good, il- illness. Good Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, it's, I mean... On to the subjects that I think a lot of listeners are going to be very interested in, which is allergic reactions. So yeah. let's say when we have a mild allergic reaction to something or we're suffering with things like hay fever. Yes. Um, I actually mentioned that to Jenna when she came in. I was like, <laughs> I haven't had any signs of hay fever yet this year. Um, we know now that we can reach for antihistamines. So what are antihistamines and why do these tablets have an effect with allergic reactions? Yes, so histamine is one of the key players in the allergic cascade. Mm. Our body, for some, for many reasons, would develop uh, an antibody called IgE that would go around the body and stick on these cells called mast cells. Mast Mm. cells are these huge, big cells with lots of granules inside them that line all the parts of our body that are potentially going to be impacted by something trying to get in us. One big defensive blanket. Yeah, (laughs) so they're lining all of our respiratory tract, Mm. all of our gut, our skin. They're even found in the blood vessels, so they're found all over the body. And this IgE antibody sticks on the surface, waiting around and if you have hay fever, for example, you breathe in some of that pollen and it goes into your lungs and it causes this 
cross-linking of IgE on the surface of these mast cells and they release a whole host of mediators, of which histamine is one of them. So they're one of many, but it's one that we can quite easily target. With so histamine is the response and then we take an antihistamine. Yes, exactly, an antihistamine <laughs> to try and dampen that response and relieve some of our symptoms. Oh, perfect. I mean, it's amazing these things have been invented, really, when we look at it. But how does the immune system work to protect us then from injuries and toxins? How does that Yeah, really so happen? there's sort of different flavors of mm. immune response, if you like. Um, they all tend to have inflammation as one of the first reactions that are happening. Mm. Even that histamine response that I just described, this is a type of inflammatory yeah. response. Uh, same if you cut your finger, um, you would see that the, the tissue would get red and swollen, it would be hot, and there's potential for infection. And that's the inflammatory response. There's that painful, whole, yeah. throbbing type of exactly. response. Or you have, maybe you can feel in your neck, your glands are swollen when you have a sore throat. And that's all your immune cells mm. proliferating to make this army to go into trying to that's fight That's probably my least infection. favorite response of the human body, the, the yeah. throat tonsils. <laughs> I mean, so it's clever, but you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what would your advice be to mums? So I have a lot of mums um, that actually don't want to get their children vaccinated. And it's a bit mm. of a, a worry, actually. I'm always trying to encourage these things. It's not even my place as a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. This is where you go and see your doctor or your GP. Yeah. But it seems to be a topic that's discussed very openly in all sorts of industries. I mean, yes, yeah. why is there a debate for people I mean, here? Vaccines, it's just crazy. I think it's probably one of the greatest public health success stories. But yeah. at the same time, it's one of the most contentious. And it feeds into all different facets of, of life. Um Yes, I mean, there's a there's a growing movement of of sort of anti-vax um, mm. um, attitudes, and this has been fueled by a few different sources. There was the uh, Lancet paper twenty thirty years ago, can't remember now, that linked um, uh, vaccines to autism, which was refuted, and the doctor involved was struck off, and the paper retracted. Mm. But the legacy of that, I think, still oh, it's definitely exists. still here. Yeah. Um, I think there's also a mistrust in the medical community that makes people go towards more woo-woo sources. Alternative therapies. Um, mm. And I think that there's like a perception that acquiring an infection naturally, such as measles, is actually better for the immune system. But interestingly, this is not always the case. So recently they've shown that for measles, when you get the infection naturally, it actually impacts your ability to defend yourself from other infections for quite a substantial time after you've had measles. Like we're talking maybe up to decades. Gosh. So it has such a dent in your immunity, whereas the vaccine has actually been shown to protect you from other unrelated infections. So not all vaccines are bad. I mm. think every medication, every intervention has a small risk to it. Yeah. And this is always on, you know, the notes that come with the drug. And I think perhaps healthcare providers can maybe help themselves by being a bit more open that nothing is 100%. But if we look at all the population that's vaccinated, not all of those are experiencing adverse reactions. Oh, no. You know, most of us are vaccinated. Most of us don't have autism, don't have any mm. of these related things that people are concerned um, might and be induced by vaccines. if you think of positives vaccines. versus negatives mm. and things, I mean, they, they've done some incredible things out there in terms of different cancers and vaccinations yes. as well. Um, but how effective are these things for hay fever? Because I've heard of people getting vaccinations for hay fever. Yeah, there's... 
not anything available on the NHS, as far as I know. There is a, a an injection for hay fever, but this Ooh. is a steroid injection yeah. that's sort of slow release to try and take the mm. edge off. Um, the I symptoms. think I would try a vaccination for hay fever if it were out there. <laughs> yes, I know. It, I mean, it's not yeah. trivial, isn't it? No. The, the symptoms of hay fever, it yeah. can be quite debilitating. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as we move into hay fever season, it's probably something that's becoming at the forefront of people's minds. So there is a treatment known as immunotherapy, which mm. is where we take teeny tiny bits of the thing that you're allergic to. So yeah. firstly, we have to really be able to define what is it you're allergic to, what specific pollens. And then we give you that either under the skin or under the tongue, a tiny amount for a really long time. So this could be up to two years oh, wow. to try and um, skew your immune system to regulatory uh. response against that mm. so instead of responding to that um, but this yeah as I said it takes years and oh. we need you to be really consistent and adhere to that you also have to go to a specific allergy clinic to have it done because yeah. you're giving someone something that they're allergic to there's always a there's potential there's always a risk yeah I mean I've enjoyed reading some of your posts about um, is it oral, oral allergy syndrome yes. yeah yeah and I'm, I'm not sure many people know this even exists I mean can you explain what that is to everyone Yes, exactly. I mean, oral allergy syndrome uh, is basically a collection of symptoms that people get around their mouth and the oral cavity after they eat something uh, and they have to be hay fever allergic. So it's when you have hay fever, this is a a downstream consequence of that. So your body's making antibodies to hay fever pollens. But they happen to cross-react with certain fruits. So you're not making antibodies to certain foods. You're making it to pollen. But just by virtue, they seem to also recognize certain foods. And these are normally fruits and vegetables that are raw in their raw forms of certain nuts. I think if you go on Wikipedia or the NHS, you might be able to find lists that show you Mm. if you have an allergy to birch trees, these are the list of fruits and vegetables that, that you may be. And it's not that you will react to all of them, <laughs> no. but you might get just some itching around the mouth um, for but some of these only around the time fruits. when you're getting yeah. your hay fever. Yes, yeah. And it would last maybe an hour. Generally, it's not a big problem. It's a bit uncomfortable. Mm. If you don't like it, you can either rinsing the mouth, taking some antihistamines or cooking the food because it denatures all the proteins so it changes their shape Gosh. and your body can no longer recognise them. It, it so. just it kind of brings me nicely on to the fact that everybody seems to think they have an intolerance these days or, or a sensitivity. So <laughs> first of all, let, let's delve into this a little bit because I know there's all sorts of things mm-hmm. coming out now which I'm constantly battling against as a nutritionist so home test kits I mean yeah <laughs> how can people find out if they have either an allergy or an intolerance yeah or a sensitivity, a sensitivity what, what yeah. are they? <laughs> I think it's great to start with kind of bringing some definitions yes. to those different terms because they're they are used by different people interchangeably and they're very different things so all reactions to food, so any kind of adverse reaction to food, we, we classify it as an adverse food reaction. And then within that, we break them down into either a true allergy, which is an immune-mediated, immune-mediated response, mm. 
or an intolerance. So depending on where you live in the world, intolerance might also be called sensitivity. So yes. these words are kind of interchangeable. I think in the UK, we tend to talk about intolerance. It can be confusing because there's something called hypersensitivity, which is, an, again, an immune mediated reaction, yeah, yeah. different from intolerance. So mm. it's better to think of allergy, um, food allergy, food intolerance. Okay. Sometimes intolerance or sensitivities, yeah. but yeah. they're the same. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's, first of all, the language is confusing. Yeah. But unlike food intolerances, allergies are caused by our immune system. So what I mentioned earlier with these IgE antibodies in terms of your hay fever, mm. it's normally the same mechanism that's happening only to food. So these mast cells that are lining our digestive tract covered in IgE antibodies when we eat the food that we're allergic to, they're triggered, they're releasing a lot of these bioactive compounds, mm. including histamine, which give us a lot of the symptoms. But there's such a big difference. I mean, an allergy mm. can be life-threatening. And yes. if you compare it to an intolerance, like let's say lactose intolerance, for instance, can't people that are lactose intolerant typically kind of tolerate, as you say, mm -hmm. up to six grams of lactose a day? Yes, exactly. Um, so intolerances share a lot of these unpleasant symptoms that mm. food allergies have, which I think is why it gets a bit muddled in people's uh, minds. Mm. But intolerance is a non-immune response of the digestive yeah. tract. So, so how would they feel? I mean, how do people know? How do they get these feelings that they're intolerant to something? Yeah, normally it's because you're not breaking down a food properly. Mm. Um, they can be sort of broadly categorized as physiological. So you may not have the enzyme present yeah. to digest that in the case of um, lactose. Yeah. It could be functional. So this is where there's a functional problem with the gut. Things like irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. So yeah. it's non-immune mediated. Yeah. There's not any antibodies at play. There's not any no. inflammation going on. If you're very stressed. I mean, I find in clinic with IBS, um, a lot of people that are going through a difficult time in their life have yeah. IBS. Yeah. Therefore, more foods that they've always been fine with their whole yeah. life suddenly become suddenly, very difficult. Yeah, exactly. It can also be pharmacological. So there are cases where some people might react to particular food additives or things that are added to food when it's um, processed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, intolerances can also be psychological. Uh, uh, in case mm. of an eating disorder, this can mm. almost trigger reactions because we know how much the, the, oh, the, the brain, brain is connected, axes. you know. Um, and I think that's really like a really kind of area that we don't, quite know or understand enough about yet no and this is why I have a little bit of a problem with home test kits I mean mm. do you think they're safe and accurate I'd say I couldn't speak for all of them they're definitely the majority that you will find on Dr Google and in <laughs> you know random health mm. food shops are not accurate mm. um Diagnosing an intolerance is really tricky because there's so, like, as I just explained, there's different triggers, different types of intolerances, um, whether it's a functional problem or um, a psychological problem. But there's a lot of these non-valid tests available. Well, I've even heard of people putting stickers on their feet and drawing wow. out um, <laughs> toxins from the feet or going to see someone that's suddenly done a tick box after a... Um, oh, oh, what do you call it with the... Is it kinesiology or with the crystals? Um, 
mm-hmm. that have suddenly been able to tell someone they can't have eggs, dairy, <gasps> wheat, yes. yeah. broccoli, really very random yeah. items. I mean, for a food allergy, a true mm. allergy, you need to go to a healthcare professional yes. because you need to, there's various things they can do, but it would be a collection of tests with a full medical history. Yeah, And they would maybe do some skin prick tests where they mm. put small amounts under your skin to see if you're reacting. They may also do a double blind trial with you. So they're sitting in a room together and trialing different foods. But if you have a true allergy, it could be very dangerous. There's a risk of anaphylaxis. So you have to do that with a healthcare provider. In terms of other tests for antibodies, you will see these IgG food tests available. Mm. There's quite a distinction between the antibody IgE, which does mediate a lot of food allergies, and IgG, which... I guess maybe 30 odd years ago, we thought this might be involved and that legacy seems to have lingered on. But yeah. we now know that IgG is produced to foods as a way of tolerating the food. So if you do an IgG blood test and it says that you're allergic to 150 <laughs> foods, it might yeah. actually mean that you're tolerant to 150 foods. And I've seen yeah. this happen, these huge lists of things. Oh my that goodness, you, you could pay a lot of money for these IgG tests. Yes, yeah, you couldn't possibly... Um, eliminate all those foods and survive. And the problem is that these tests are probably technically um, working. So they probably are picking up IgG in your body, but they're Mm. clinically not valid because what it's saying that it's doing, these antibodies are not actually doing that or potentially not. It's just they happen to be there circulating because of the food anyway. So it's it's a very interesting um, thing at the moment because I think it's a very big talking point, anything relating to your food that you eat and your gut and your body. But, I mean, celiac disease affects 1% of the population. So how on earth have we got to a point where people are thinking they need to be gluten-free, let's say? I mean... What is the difference between the wheat allergy and the wheat intolerance? Yeah, so this is really uh, interesting. I can also speak from personal level yeah. as a celiac exactly. uh, person myself, diagnosed in my 20s. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got a personal interest in this as it well. It must be so difficult as well because for an actual celiac sufferer, yes. <laughs> you would not wish it on anybody. No, exactly. And there's it's an it's actually classified as an autoimmune condition although mm. there's a dietary element um strictly it would be an autoimmune disease mm. and there's actually particular genetics that predispose you to that so the way your immune system sees these gluten peptides um is is quite tightly linked to genetics yeah so you can almost tell if someone's predisposed by by looking at them at yeah. their genetics and when they do eat gluten it causes this huge inflammation of the gut lining Mm. and basically changes the whole architecture of the gut so it cannot do its job Mm. and you can be at risk of malnutrition also the the cost of the inflammation and that damage on your body you can also be at risk for cancer further down the line just because you have these cycles of damage so it's a really serious it's totally lifelong condition Mm. and even having a crumb of of gluten containing bread from sharing a toaster that is triggering your immune system mm. because you you only need tiny tiny amounts of the offending yeah. substance yeah. to get the reaction to happen yeah but yeah, it's it's confusing because you walk down any high street in the country and everything is being offered as gluten-free, gluten-free. as if it's like a health um, well, brand. People think, and I actually have a lot of people, acquaintances I know, that gluten-free mm-hmm. makes them feel poorly. Oh, really? For no That's reason where they're not celiac. Or, yeah. And it's, it's almost become maybe perhaps 
dare I say, potentially psychological as well? Yes, yeah. I mean, there there's a lot of talk in the literature, the scientific literature, about non-celiac gluten sensitivity. This is what I wanted to ask you yeah. about. Unfortunately, from where we stand right now, there's no... Um, unified biomarker there's mm. no consensus in the field of mm. who this affects how it happens what happens there's been a few studies that have shown that the placebo effect can be at play mm. so people really believe that gluten is the thing that's causing mm. them a problem mm. but when they've done the trials it they, they get the same symptoms whether they're getting a placebo or not. Yeah. Um, there's also studies that show that it's other parts of the wheat. So the um, thinking of the FODMAPs. Yeah, because gluten's a protein. So it may mm. not be the protein itself. It could be another part of genetic makeup of the bread. Yes, exactly. Or you're eating. So the fructans, I think, yes. in particular, yeah. they've shown that these can be problematic for some people. And so it's not that they're responding to gluten, but it's by virtue of those both being in the same foods. Mm. Um, so this can also be at play. So perhaps there is such a thing as non-celiac yeah. gluten sensitivity but there's no consensus about what that is and how we treat mm. it potentially it comes into the bracket of the FODMAPs yes. um, which are these uh, different types of, of carbohydrates in, in foods that mm. people can react against and I always think it's funny if people talk about the FODMAP diet it should really be the low FODMAP diet because yeah. you want to reduce them to find your tolerance level mm. you don't just want to remove them forever well, it's an experimentation yeah. period done with a registered dietitian it yeah. should never be something people go home and becomes a lifestyle choice forever yes, living exactly. on a FODMAP diet yeah yeah. And this is what's very, very important, again, to raise, is that conditions like ulcerative colitis, yeah. Crohn's disease, yeah. and they are serious bowel diseases. Yes. And having a bit of gluten can really affect some of these conditions very mm -hmm. seriously, like you said, with celiac disease. So for anyone listening, I think the yes. general consensus there is really gluten isn't harmful unless yes. you are really experiencing any of these types exactly. of conditions or there may be a non-gluten yes. sensitivity there may be one of those but, but it's, we don't know yes exactly we don't know so that leads me on to questions we've got from followers we've had lots of different people mm -hmm. um asking various questions for you jenna i've never known anything like it actually exciting <laughs> i don't know what to expect i know um <laughs> So, Christine has said, I'm off to India soon and I'm nervous about getting a deli belly. Mm. Um, if I do get sick, is it going to stop my contraceptive pill from working? Potentially, yes, if you oh. get diarrhea, because uh, this is going to secrete, it, get rid of the, the pill much quicker than normal. Wow. And yeah, we know that this could be... Um, potentially leaving you open to oh my goodness. pregnancy. So, yes, there we go, care. Christine. Definitely yeah. take care there. And Chloe has <laughs> said, my baby girl is six months old. Mm. Um, is it always better that I keep her away from germs at a young age or expose her to them? Oh, I would say exposed to germs. I think the basic hygiene <laughs> always applies. More mud so pies. It's, yeah, it's not like we want them to be licking, you know, no. toilets or anything. No. Really, washing hands before eating, keeping food preparation areas clean, all the basic hygiene is, you know, the thumbs up. But 
yes, the the dirt, the trees, the nature yeah. environments, these have a, a microbiome of them, their own. We're yeah. breathing it in, we're ingesting it, it's enriching our own. They might not actually live inside us, but they're doing good things as they move through. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence for letting kids, I mean, they, if you look at any six-month-old, they're, they're primed to put things in their mouth, you know, and there's a reason for that. So, mm. yeah, don't worry about antibacterial hand gel. Dirt is good. Good. There we go. <laughs> Tori has said, I'm 17 and have, I've had asthma all my life. Um, will I ever grow out of it? At 17, it's hard to say. Once you have an allergy, you're normally somewhat atopic. Because we hear um, that with nuts as well in childhood. Yes. I think it's uh, in childhood, as I said earlier yeah. in the podcast, because your immune system is evolving mm. and developing, it's really quite common yeah. that children will grow out of things. Um but I guess the more you get towards adulthood, the less likely it is that you would grow out of it. It's not right. to say. There we go. Uh, Robbie has said, would probiotics, oh, it's your favourite phrase, Janet, <laughs> boost my immune system? Uh, <laughs> I think we don't know because we don't know enough about the microbiome mm. and probiotics at a population level to yeah. say. Uh, and it would depend on his situation if he's had a lot of antibiotics, if he notices a difference with them. But that also could be quite subjective that you feel like you're taking something and you're investing in something. Yeah, Hard to say. Um, but no harm, no I harm, guess. No harm, exactly, if that's where you want to got the budget to spend on probiotics right well this moves me on to my favorite part of the podcast jen and that is our fact or fiction (gasps) are you ready (laughs) i hope so okay (laughs) so we answer fact or fiction to the following vaccinations always work uh fiction over exercising can weaken our immunity fact Eating fruit and vegetables keeps your immune system strong. Fact. Great. Love that one. Um, Most allergies are grown out of in childhood. Perhaps not most. Depends what the allergy is, but somewhat. (laughs) Women have a higher pain threshold than men. Fact. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Smoking helps build immunity to illness. Smoking? (laughs) I'd have to say fiction. (laughs) Um, Medication doesn't have an expiry date. Oh, fiction. Oh, so how much? Just, I'm just interrupting the quick fire very quickly. Mm-hmm. So people should always check their medicine cabinets. Yes. Yeah, exactly. If yeah. you're going home to your parents or your grandparents' house, always check yeah. their medication. Yeah. yeah. The more we're ill, the shorter our lifespan. Oh, that's an interesting one. Depends what kind of ill you are. Um, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Getting ill is the sign of a poor immune system. Not always. And home allergy test kits are useful. Fiction. <laughs> yeah, that completes our quick fire round. Very, Sorry. very well answered. Very quick there. So as with every guest, um, this moves me on to the part where we wrap up the podcast and we finish with a food for thought. Mm. So mine today would be that what we eat can play a key role in supporting our immune system. So it's really important to eat a wide array of foods to ensure we're getting all the nutrients we can possibly get. And as we discussed earlier, that doesn't mean one single food is going to be beneficial. It's a whole variety there. And what's interesting is that the colour of our foods can sometimes tell us about how they can contribute to our health. 
blue and purple foods like blueberries and plums, I mean, they often contain powerful antioxidants that may protect blood vessels as we age or the green foods out there with lots of vitamin K that ensure our blood can clot effectively, helping with healing things like cuts and open wounds. Yellow foods tend to be rich in vitamin C, and this is a very generalised thing, but I'm liking and trying to go on the eat a rainbow analogy here. And we know vitamin C is known to help protect ourselves, and vitamin A as well, which is important for immune function, can be found in your orange foods like carrots and nectarines. And then we have vitamin D. Now, this is something the government advises that we take 10 micrograms during the autumn and winter months of, and that is because it does play an important role in our immune system. So my nutritional food for thought aside, if you could leave us, Jenna, with one thing that you want our listeners to take away from Mm. today, what would that be? I think, as you said, the variety. I like to think about um, fibre because it's probably the one that people think about least in terms Mm. of their immunity. Not something we managed to touch on today, but fibre is so important. I could probably fill a whole hour talking about that. So I like fibre, the fats, the good fats. Um, Not all fats are created equal. The phytos, the phytonutrients, Mm. uh, all that different colourful fruits and vegetables. And also just flavour. I just think so many people are in a food prison because they've they've prisoned themselves and they're restricting themselves. And I just Mm. think, you know... Yes, it's important to to eat the best kind of diet and that's going to help you feel well. But it's important to have the endorphin release around food and happiness because actually in terms of regulating our immune system the t-regs these regulatory cells they love endorphins they love happiness it keeps them going it's one of the things that they respond to so it's really yeah food oh it's brilliant (laughs) my mind is buzzing i always want to start the podcast again because actually it's very interesting what you've just said about Mm -hmm. happy hormone which we know 90 percent of serotonin comes from the gut so it makes sense we eat more fiber to help our gut bacteria Yeah. Which also, as you said, the gut is directly linked with the immune system. Yes, exactly. Like yeah. Completely. So if you've got a happy <laughs> gut, a happy immune system. Janet, exactly. thank you so, so no much. No problem. My pleasure. Coming on Food for Thought. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. It really is heartening to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing advice. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love what's coming next week. So make sure you click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please do leave a five-star review. It really does help to get our podcast out there and hopefully help more people. So we'd really appreciate it. For more information about my Retrition Clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com, subscribe to my newsletter, and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. 